Amen. All right, we're in Daniel 6 now. We're going to read verse 1 through 12 this week. Lord, speak to us as we study your word. Move upon us in power. We bring you hearts that are ready to receive, ready to hear. Come on, we bring you hearts that are ready to repent, ready to change, ready to grow, ready to be molded in the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, have your way with us. Church, would you just say that with me? Say, Lord, have your way with us. Have your way with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to turn for the next few weeks and look at prayer as a theme. And there's just a few really simple concepts that I think God is leading us to grasp in this season. And so this may not be the most profound time that we have, but sometimes the when we crave profound, we oftentimes miss the simple things that we really need, right? You can crave the most profound meals, the most delicious meals, but sometimes you're like, you need vegetables, you need, you need protein. Um, and so I want to just, we're going to give just some meat for the next several weeks and believe the Lord to, to shift some things in our hearts. William Wilberforce said this, William Wilberforce was the, the politician who helped end the, the transatlantic slave trade. He was a Christian. He felt called into ministry and John Newton told him not to be a pastor, but to keep pressing um, for the end of the transatlantic slave trade. Wilberforce said this, the perpetual hurry of busyness and company ruins me in my soul, if not in body. He said this, more solitude in earlier hours. The perpetual busyness and company. He's saying, I'm with people too much and I've got too many tasks and the, the hurriedness of my life, it ruins my soul. Wilberforce said that history showed that all good men through all good men, that too little prayer leaves the soul lean and weak. Too little prayer leaves our souls lean and weak, Wilberforce said. And he said, in this season uh, with great political turmoil, think of Wilberforce like studying and arguing and debating, trying to end the slave trade. In this season of great work, Wilberforce said, I haven't given enough time to prayer and my soul is weak and tired. Martin Luther said this, If I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. He says, I have so much business, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. Luther said, if I should neglect prayer but a single day, I should lose a great deal of the fire of faith. Now, Luther, again, is also like Wilberforce, a man shaking the world. He has great debate constantly. He has constant arguments and He's arguing that the Christian faith has to arise from the text of Scripture, not from tradition. And so Luther knows turmoil and trial. He's got a great call in his life. Therefore, he needs a great amount of of prayer. He says, if I avoid prayer, I'll lose so much of the fire of faith. Mark 1, 35, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Jesus was in the habit of rising before the sun to be alone with God and to pray. As far as I can tell, I'm going to tell on myself today, there are two views of prayer that people grasp and that churches grasp. For years, I I I held one view of prayer, and my, my primary proclamation was that prayer was a Christian duty that needed to be done, that we needed to pray for our regions, we needed to pray for revival. Um, it's a great kind of catchphrase that we don't have revival because we're prayerless. And for years, I believed that. 
and I still believe that to an extent. Like we Christian Christians should pray. We have a duty to pray. We need to pray. I want my kids to have the benefit of being covered in prayer every single day. There are some things that happen when we pray that don't happen when we don't pray. Prayer is 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 a duty. It's a it's a responsibility. It's a Christian task. And and that's true. But when I stand and preach, we need to pray. We need to pray for our city. We don't pray for revival. There's a strange dynamic that happens in the heart of the preacher or the proclam- the proclaimer, and it's as if the preacher is pro- propping himself up and saying, look, I've prayed enough. I'm the prayer. I'm the intercessor, and none of you intercede, and it makes a man's heart hard. And we stumble into a real problem like this. What is enough prayer? It's two hours, three hours, one hour. And so some of us can get on a high horse and say, we need to pray more. We need to pray more. But your prayer life is 20 minutes. And the other person thinks that pray more means four hours. So the idea of praying more is very relative. And it should be relative to a sense. It's between you and God. But the first view of prayer says, we've got to do more. We've got to, we've got to press. We need to pray. The second view of prayer realizes what these great men of faith realize it's not just that we need to pray, but we we need to pray. In other words, it's not just that we have a duty to pray, but if we don't pray, we'll faint. If we don't pray, we grow weary and tired. Our souls grow lean. That's the words of William Wilberforce. Our faith grows tired. Luther says we'll lose the fire of our faith if we don't pray. It's not just that we have a responsibility to pray. We have a need to pray. We are needy, you and I. We are not the strong. We are not the the sufficient. We are the desperate ones. And so Wilberforce says, I actually can't afford to not pray. I get tired and weak, and and I rise up in my flesh, and I lack wisdom. And Luther says, I can't afford to not pray. Come on, you're a stay-at-home mom. You're raising kids to the best of your ability. You're believing God's going to raise up earth shakers in your home. You need to pray. You are needy. I know what it's like to have a house full of kids. You get fleshy real quick. You're a businessman. You believe God's going to use you in business. You believe God's connecting you to people to share the gospel. You need prayer, man. I don't care how busy your days are. I, I, don't, I, don't, mean, I don't mean to be critical here, but I, I just doubt they're probably not as busy as Wilberforce is. Like, the greater call in your life, the greater pouring out of your life for the kingdom, the more prayer you actually need. And it's, again, it's not that I'm saying you have to pray or God doesn't love you. You have this responsibility. I'm not saying that. I'm saying your soul will grow hungry if you don't learn prayer. Now, the problem is that malnutrition in the, in the, in the natural, when you find someone who's really malnourished, you know, you see kids on TV and their stomachs are swollen. They will not eat. Because malnutrition leaves you to a place where food feels off-putting, disgusting. And so when, when, when a person physically grows malnourished, they'll begin to resist food. And you can't just stuff a piece of pizza down a person's face who hasn't had food in months. And the church in the spirit is very much that way. We're malnourished. And prayer is off-putting to us. And we, we, we're, we're like infants who still need milk and we can't, the, the infant can't have pizza. Right? The infant can't eat steak, can't digest that. And, and as a people in the West in particular, and many churches in, in Asia, many churches 
even in India, have learned these lessons. Argentina, they've learned these lessons far before us. But the church in the West, in many, in many instances, we're prayerless, we are needy, our souls are tired and weak, but we're so sick that the idea of food or, or prayer, it just feels like work. It just feels like another thing on the list. And let me just say, preparing a meal is work. Prayer is work. I'm not denying that. So is making your food. That's why we go out to eat. But we're still paying someone with money we worked for to do the work for us. Prayer is work, no doubt. But the, do, you, do you know what the, the, the after effects of not cooking are? Dying. Right? Like you need to eat because you need strength and sustenance. And so you go through the daily work of preparing food. No one thinks about that. You just do it. But for some reason, we don't realize that our souls have a need for God. And we say, you know what? I'll I'll just kind of rush through my day and maybe I'll attend church, but I'm not going to give myself to communion with God daily. And your souls are so malnourished. Our souls are malnourished. And we need to, in this season, this is one of the biggest things I'm praying. In this season, we need to turn to God again. We need our souls to be revived. We need our souls to be healthy in prayer. We need to recognize that if Luther needed hours of prayer, we probably need prayer. You say, well, it's boring. I don't know if you've ever like peeled potatoes, but it ain't the most entertaining thing on earth. If prayer is, prayer takes a long time. Like, yeah. We can't afford to not have it. You guys hear my heart? We can't afford to not have it. It's not just that we want to be the hyper-spiritual church and we want to be able to point our fingers at every other church and say, you don't have as many prayer meetings as us and we're holy and we're revivalist. Man, forget that. We need prayer because we're weak. And we can't fulfill the call of God on our lives individually nor corporately without reestablishing prayer at the center of our devotion. We need a culture shift. The early church meant to pray every day. John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Abide in me. Remember, abide in me. Without me, you can do nothing. And let me just, let me just beat you in the head for a minute here. If you'll give me that great privilege. When Jesus says, abide in me, without me, you can do nothing. He obviously does not mean that without abiding in Jesus, you can't work. There are unbelievers in Jesus's day who work He obviously doesn't mean you can't prosper. There are unbelievers that prosper. He obviously does not mean without abiding in me, you can't succeed. Obviously, unbelievers succeed. He means that without abiding in him through prayer and the meditation of the word, you cannot produce anything of eternal fruit. You can't have real life. You can have a a shadow of life, a shadow of physical existence. You can take care of your bodies through eating and through exercise. And you can be devoted to your work and you can excel and succeed and have a dead soul. He's saying your souls can't live unless you find their nourishment in me. You need to be diligent to find nourishment in the person of Jesus. Now, I want to take you to a passage that I've thought a lot about over the years. Is it hot or is it just me? It's menopause. I think I'm going through menopause. Joe, turn the air down, man. Come on. I'll give you a tip. 
I've thought a lot about this passage over the years, and I've preached it. And in one sense, we're going to find Daniel going to the lion's den because he wouldn't give up on prayer. And and part of Daniel's heart here is, yes, that he's being, um, he's having conviction. He's standing up against government because he refuses to quit on prayer uh, in order to appease his government. So his loyalty to God is, is much higher than his loyalty to, to government. And I, and I think there's valid truth there. And I still believe that without, without a shadow of a doubt. But I, but I want to read from Daniel's life in chapter six. And I just believe that, that, that what we're seeing is not just a conviction to not bow to government, but it's a conviction of Daniel's own neediness for prayer. I just believe what we're going to see is that Daniel realized that it wasn't just that he, he needed to pray to fulfill a duty, but he needed to pray to live. And, and the threat of, I'm going to take your physical life if you pray, that threat was not as bad as the idea of not praying for 30 days. Daniel 6, 1 through 12. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Okay, so we have a transition in power here and this is in Babylon. And in, in, in this transition of power, Darius, the new ruler, he set up a system. There are 120 kind of governors and these 120 governors, every 40, they submit to a high, a high, a high leader, a, a, a high official. So 120 governors submitting to th- 40 each to three officials. And then the text is going to tell us that Daniel begins to rise to the top. It says, verse 3, then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps. So, so now we have 122, and Daniel's rising to the very top because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground of complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors, the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed. And he gave thanks before God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. So Daniel was bringing thanks before God, making petition and plea. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, again, we have a transition in government. The Medes and Persians are rising to power. Darius is the ruler. Darius has 120 governors, three high officials. Daniel's rising to the top. And we slide into a narrative filled with jealousy and manipulation. The governors decide that they have to find a way to overthrow Daniel. 
they watch Daniel's life, and what they find is that he's a man of faithfulness, he's a man of wisdom, he's a man of excellence, and the scripture says they can find no fault in him. Now, there's something to ponder there, because if I hired if I hired 120, what do you call those personal investigators? What do you call those? Is that what they're called? I'm very sharp today. Um, if I hired them to track your life, would they come back and say, man, there's nothing? Would they come back and say, we, we find no fault in this person? Or are there things hidden in your closet? Are there areas of your life where you still haven't repented and brought them? Is there areas of your life where you haven't been exposed before the Lord? Or can they say of you, as they say of Daniel, there's no fault in this man? And so when they realize that they can't find fault in him, they, they decide that the only way to catch Daniel is to pit his, his loyalty to the king against his loyalty to God. And they find his loyalty to God expressed most fully in prayer. So they establish a, a law for 30 days that if anyone prays to anyone other than Darius, so essentially in this season, they're establishing Darius as a type of high priest. You have to bring your request to Darius and Darius is going to pray to the gods. If you don't pray to Darius through Darius, um, then you're going to be thrown in the lion's den. Historically speaking, this time period, the idea of being thrown in the lion's den is a thing that took place. We know this from uh, outside of biblical history. And I don't know if you can imagine being thrown to hungry lions, but I'd just rather not. Okay. So they say no one can pray. Now, notice in the text the delineation. Uh, let's, let's just take a minute to look at the distinction. There are two classes of men, two sets of men. We have the prayerless men, the men of the world. And then we have the man of prayer. The man of prayer, we found, has an excellent spirit. He's a man of wisdom. He's a man of faithfulness. The man of prayer possesses certain characteristics which are superior to the man of the world, and he possesses those characteristics, those qualities, through prayer. The man of prayer finds faithfulness in prayer. Daniel, uh, think of James saying, Elijah was a man like us. Daniel was a man like us. Daniel did not attain an angelic spiritual nature in which he didn't struggle with frustration or anxiety or fear or depression. No, Daniel conquered his flesh in prayer. And he possessed certain qualities that caused him to rise to leadership. Now, these men, we see they have a hunger for power, but they lack the characteristics that would cause a man to elevate them to a position of authority. And many in the church are this way. Man, we want power. We want authority. We want to be seen. But we lack the character qualities that make you trustworthy. We see that in politics over and over. They lack the character qualities that make them trustworthy. And now when they're pitted against Daniel, and Daniel's going to be made the ruler of the entire kingdom, they they begin to manipulate. Their strategy and their strength is in manipulation and in politics. Their strategy and their strength is in deception. They deceive the king to get what they want. Daniel's strategy and strength was not in manipulation. His strategy and strength was to go to God and pray again. He did not manipulate back. He didn't appeal to the king. He didn't run into the king's courts and throw a fit. He went to the place of prayer. Are we the people of prayer? Or are we the people of the world? Now, I want to show you quickly. I don't have the time to exegete this perfectly. 
I want to show you quickly that I believe Daniel doesn't even want power. I don't think that Daniel has any, like, selfish desire for political gain. The idea of Daniel having his windows open towards Jerusalem was that when Solomon dedicated the temple, the Lord said, if I judge your people, if you will pray towards Jerusalem, humble yourselves and pray, I'll heal your land. Turn from your wicked ways, I'll heal your land. So Daniel was practicing what the promise from from Solomon's day, that when God judged Israel, and in this season they've been judged, right? They've been brought to Babylon. He's opening his windows. He's actually praying that Israel would be established again. He's praying for Jerusalem. And so many of us, if we attained a great position of power, we're about to be king over entire nations, we would be very content to live in that place. But Daniel doesn't want to be king of kings. Daniel wants to return to Jerusalem and worship Yahweh in the temple of the Most High God. When you live as a person of the world, all of your desires and agendas must be worldly. They're caught up in what comes in this life. When you live as a person of prayer, the eternal begins to stare you in the face. And you realize that wealth, although it's a blessing, wealth does not help my kids walk with Jesus. Prayer does. And comfort, having the biggest house in the neighborhood, it doesn't ensure that my grandkids really know God. But I can give myself to prayer. Your values begin to shift, and in prayer you learn eternal conviction. If we could just for a moment point out again that Daniel is at this point seasoned in his life. He's served different kings for decades, and he has every reason to be depressed. He serves a foreign king. He speaks a different language. He hasn't been to his homeland literally in decades. But rather than being depressed and weary and weak, we find him faithful, wise, excellent in all things. Come on, I just am trying to say that I think in this hour, God's asking his church to shift into the the, the posture of the person of prayer where we're wise, where we're full, where our souls aren't lean, but our souls are robust in God, where we abide in the vine and we bear the fruit of the kingdom, eternal fruit, where our focus is not on wealth, personal gain, but our focus is on souls bowing their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Are you the man of prayer? Are you the woman of prayer in this text? Are you the man and woman of the world? Now, after the threat's been made, the text tells us that Daniel goes upstairs in his house and he prays three times a day. They catch the most faithful man in the kingdom disobedient to the law because the most faithful man in the kingdom cannot give up on prayer. His call is first to to sit before the Lord, to intercede. He's risking his career. He's risking his life. For what? Why? Because he so believes in his gut that his soul needs God. He believes that his nation needs God. He believes intercession is valuable, wonderfully valuable. 
he could have turned to political strategy. He's a wise politician. I'm sure he could have figured out a way to twist the arm of Darius back the other way. That's what the church does, man. We run to strategy. We read the latest, greatest books. And it's like at some time, at some point, we have to realize that our greatest strategy is intimacy with the Holy Spirit, walking with the Holy Spirit, being dependent upon the Holy Spirit. I think we see Daniel needy. I think he doesn't rise up and use his mind to solve his problem. But he says, my life has been in prayer now for decades. And I'm going to bring these issues to God in prayer. And I'm going to go to the secret place of prayer. And I'm going to pray. I can't afford. I literally cannot afford to be prayerless. I'm not trying to prove. I don't think Daniel's trying to prove that he's the greatest man of prayer to ever live. I think he's saying, I can't. I literally can't afford to not pray. Too much pressure on my life. There's a neediness, a dependence that we have to rediscover in this hour. We cannot afford to be prayerless. We are not trying to compete with anybody. And if you think you're the most spiritual person in the room because you spent the most time in prayer, your arrogance cuts you right off at the knees right away. You have no idea how much time everyone else is spending in prayer. Prayer is not a tool to bolster yourself up. Prayer is the place where we drink. We need a revelation. We need an understanding. We need our eyes to be open to our own neediness. Thinking of, of, of uh, the, 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 the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 through 4, and Jesus saying to a prosperous city, man, you're poor, blind, and naked. This city had wealth. The city had fame. The city had comfort. And Jesus says, yeah, like in the natural, you're clothed well, but your souls are totally weak and lean and tired. What if that's the description of us? What if the description of heaven towards our region would be, man, you're clothed well, your houses are beautiful, you're prosperous, but you're poor, blind, and naked? I'm not saying it is. We need this revelation. We need our eyes to be open to our own spiritual dryness. We can't go on being rested in the physical we can't go on being strong in the natural. We can't go on concerned with our diets, concerned with our exercise, which are good things, and not concerned with the fact that our souls are weary, tired, and weak. And you may say, Caleb, I just don't like prayer. Again, you don't like prayer because you're so malnourished that you can't sit and eat. Fasting is saying to God, I'm more concerned right now about my soul being full of you. I'm more concerned right now about my spirit being uh, connected to the vine, about finding my nourishment in you, than I am about being concerned about my physical body. In the same way that my physical body needs bread, I'm going to put that off for a couple of weeks because I need the bread for my soul. Guys, we're fainting. The church in the West is fainting. The church in the West is declining more rapidly than it's ever declined in the history of our nation. We are fainting. Now, if I could just be practical for a minute, and I'm going to get out of here because it's hot. I don't know what's going on.
if you say I'm too busy to pray, I'm too busy to be alone with God, I just want to gently say, like, you're not more busy than Daniel. Your busyness makes you more needy. Your, your responsibility makes you needier. You guys hear what I'm saying? You need to be with God. But, man, I, and I don't mean this critical because, man, I struggle here. Like, the, the idea of I need more sleep, I need more sleep, I'm tired, I need more sleep. You, you can go without sleep sometimes. You need more of God. Take a nap. It's wonderful. The idea of I've got too much going on, therefore I don't pray, it allows your soul to, to grow weary and weak, your spiritual life to begin to faint, while in the natural, you may be accomplishing tasks, you may be making money, you may appear successful by all fronts externally. But you are not accomplishing eternal tasks and purposes. Jesus says, if you don't abide in me, you can do nothing. Again, what does he mean by nothing? He means things of eternal significance. And the Bible says that on the last day, your works will be judged with fire. And some of us will bring before God all of our life's efforts, and the flame of God will rise, and all that, all that will be found is wood, hay, and stubble, things that are no significance. You spent your life making money, and there was no significance to the breath you breathe. You need to make money, obviously. And if you make a lot, cool. But you don't make money at the expense of abandoning your eternal work. You need to roll on the ground in prayer. You need to give yourself to prayer. And the things that you value, let me just, again, be gently harsh here. The things that you value, you you calendar. You calendar the things you value. I, some of us, man, you work so hard. I promise you, you got a vacation on the calendar. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, I'm not throwing, throwing any stones. There is something wrong with not calendaring your prayer life. Your prayer life is not the thing that I do as long as nothing else comes up. Your prayer life is not the thing that you do as long as no one schedules a meeting at 8 a.m. If someone schedules a meeting at 8 a.m., Maybe try to move it if you can, or get up. Your prayer life is not second. It's first, man. It's really first. And again, what I'm not saying is that it needs to be first so that you're hyper-spiritual and you can be arrogant. What I'm saying is that we are going to faint. We are going to watch our nation decay. We're going to hand our kids a stale, fleshy faith. We're excusing our sin. And what one generation excuses, the next generation lives in with full strength. You think the pornography problem in the church is bad today? If we don't give ourselves to prayer, watch what our kids go through. What you value, you will prioritize and calendar. And so for us, man, we just believe that biblically speaking, Jesus taught us that there's a such thing as a prayer, a secret prayer life, a private prayer life. And so, um, I think that you need to spend time with God every morning alone in the quiet. Jesus says, go in your closet and shut the door. But then we see in scripture over and over again that the church also prayed uh, corporately. The church gathered to pray. Jesus even saying, where two or more are gathered, there I'll be with you. And the disciples, the first thing they did when Jesus said, wait here in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 
is they went into an upper room and they prayed every night together. The Moravians, we studied for months, this group of people who launched the first Protestant mission movement and changed the world for the preaching of the gospel. These people prayed every night together. And so I think you need times of intimate, personal prayer in the morning, and you need to schedule, you need to calendar some times to be in prayer with the body. We're praying on Wednesday nights on the island. We're praying on Sunday nights uh, at, at the roasting room. During the fast, we're praying every night. I know that's a lot. I'm not saying you need to be there every night, but we are praying every night in the roasting room, except for Wednesday nights when we're here. You need to put some of that stuff on your calendar. I'm not telling you you've got to be at every single one. And make an effort to be at our prayer gathering. I really believe that God is going to stir something in our hearts. You've got to put some things on your calendar that say, prayer is priceless to me. And, And again, think of Daniel. Daniel, here are your options. Don't pray for 30 days or go to the lion's den. Daniel going, good God, I've got to pray. I can't not pray for 30 days. I can't afford to not pray for 30 days. Now us, our options are be in prayer or or watch NASCAR. And we're over and over again choosing NASCAR. A bunch of rednecks. Now, again, do you have to find a healthy rhythm in life? You need times of rest. You need times of, of worship. You need times where you're alone. But, man, you need times where you have, you have quiet with the Lord, just you and Jesus, and you, you intentionally get your butt to prayer to be in God's presence and to petition the Lord with the saints. The early church did it every day. Worship team, if you come for me, I'm going to start winding down. Just go ahead and turn the heater up. I mean, at this point, let's just crank it up. Let's smoke them out, man. I want to close with just a simple point. Hunger, church, when we think of hunger, we we sing, we're hungry, we're hungry, we're hungry for more of you. We want to be hungry, make us hungry. Hunger, I'm beginning to understand is not what you experience on your mountaintop. It's not your youth camp experience where you've just had so much of God that you can't wait to have more. That's actually not hunger. That's like going to a great restaurant that you love and wanting to go back with your friends. Hunger is that what, what you express when you have a revelation of your neediness. Hunger is the expression of, I understand how much I need you, God, and I don't have you right now. I'm hungry, therefore I go to the secret place of prayer every day, not because I'm soaring on eagle's wings and everything's beautiful and delightful, but because I know I cannot afford to not have you today, God. I can't afford to not have you today, God. And man, I just think we live in a day where where there's lots of jockeying in the church and sometimes we're, we're scratching each other's eyes out about minor theological issues. Man, we're, we're missing the forest for the trees, man. The forest is, we are prayerless. Maybe not perfectly prayerless, but, but corporately in our nation, the church in the West is, is not would not be called a church of prayer. Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer, not a house of commerce. A place where people flow in to bring petitions and thanksgiving, to pray for their kids. So as, as you stand, go ahead and stand for us. I'm going to pray. And I want to ask, man, in this in this next three, three.
three weeks, I'm asking that we would do some real transitioning in our hearts. Some real transitioning in our hearts. And so there's no condemnation here, seriously, none. We all struggle. There's no doubt about that. All of us struggle. But if this word has convicted you at all, if anything in your heart just said, man, I need to recognize my neediness again, I want to ask you to come to the altar as that begins to sing for us. Anything in you that just says, I need to return to hunger, to being desperate for God. I need to return to prayer. I want to ask you to come. Lift up one voice, singing hallelujah. To our God, we lift up one voice. Oh, we need to repent of, God, of pursuing the things of this world and not pursuing things of eternal value. We lift up one voice, singing hallelujah. To our God, we Jesus. lift up one voice. To our God, we lift up one Jesus. song. Let's just do business with God for a few minutes. Pastor Brad, you can come.